So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. I think last time we spoke, I was just about to head out to Thailand on a whirlwind trip, which I can happily report back on as a huge success. I love traveling and it just gives you that jolt of perspective you need sometimes. As I drove out on the three hour road to the conference venue I was speaking at, we passed thousands of people all going about their day to day business, rushing the kids to school, heading to meetings or dashing for lunch. And it just makes you realise that there are 8 billion people in the world, all of whom have their own issues and daily struggles to contend with. And in fact, they're so engrossed in their challenges that they have zero awareness that we even exist. And it just helped me to reframe how important we think some issues are and actually how insignificant our lives are in the big scheme of things. I also really enjoyed the challenge of trying to create that safe environment and that empathic connection with the group of execs I was working with. We come from such extremes, East and West, and our experiences and languages are so different. So just trying to judge the best way to discuss, debate and provoke fresh thinking when we're speaking different languages and I'm a stranger in their domain was really interesting. We actually had live translation for the workshop that I was facilitating, so that was really interesting. It gave the Thai execs a chance to speak passionately and authentically without trying to find the right words in a different language. And it also allowed me to keep sense-checking their reaction to the content I was sharing around teamwork. On returning back from that 48-hour trip, my next session was at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, where I was supporting the generalship course. Those are some of the most senior leaders in the military and their experiences and stories are truly remarkable. We shared strategies for leading teams through high pressure and high stakes situations. And sadly, my examples of FA Cup teams or World Cup cricket teams were paltry in comparison to their experiences on the front line. But despite these contrasting contexts, We found loads of common ground through controlling our fight and flight response, managing talent or using purpose, identity and storytelling to galvanise people together around a shared goal. If you managed to join us for the recent webinar that we ran a week or so ago, then I really hope you enjoyed it. And it's been brilliant to welcome 
more executive teams into our Sporting Edge members platform to use our incredible digital insights to drive high performance across their teams. Remember, all our interviews are that you hear in the podcast are just a, the tip of the iceberg, really, in terms of the content we've created. So have a look at sportingedge.com forward slash membership to see how you can use that within your own professional development and your teams. A quick thank you to before we get started also to everyone who shared the show. Uh, and this week's five star review shout out goes to Chris003, who said he's finding the show really helpful with the title, awesome and inspiring. Chris, if you drop me a note through to hello at sportingedge.com, then I'll set you up with a free membership pass. So thank you so much for taking the time to leave that review. So let's get on with the show. And this year's Six Nations rugby tournament is fast approaching and we've got the perfect guest. He was born on the 17th of September 1963 in Hamilton on the North Island of New Zealand. He played hooker for Waikato and after playing he transitioned into coaching and is currently in his second spell leading Wales. In his first spell from 2007 to 2019 he won four Six Nations titles including three Grand Slams and reaching the semi-finals of the 2011 and 2019 Rugby World Cups. He's also well known for being the head coach of the British and Irish Lions on three tours to Australia in 2013 when they won the Test Series 2-1, to New Zealand in 2017 when the series was drawn and to South Africa in 2021 where they lost the series 2-1. He was also the coach at Connaught, uh, London Wasps, where he won three premierships and the Heineken Cup, and Waikato, with whom he won the Air New Zealand Cup. He also coached the Chiefs between 2020 and 2022, before returning recently to Wales uh, in December last year. It's, of course, Warren Gatland CBE, and I caught up with him a few weeks back and found his insights absolutely fascinating. Here's a taster of what's coming up. I think that winning mindset is about it's just how driven you are. I, I think the Lions is is a concept that we need to preserve in, in the game. You're bringing players together from four nations who have been beating the crap out of each other over a six nations period and then they've got to come together in a team in such a short amount of preparation time. There's been a lot of talk about the Lions in 2013 with leaving Brian and Driscoll out of the third test and I came under an enormous amount of criticism. The biggest challenge is not the rugby or getting things right, it's getting things right off the field. So let's kick off the insights with Warren. First of all, he explains his initial introduction to sport and it sounds like those competitive juices were there from a very early age. Rugby has been such an, an important part of my life. Uh, my father took me down to the local rugby club at five years of age and he played in beer feet every Saturday morning and you know he did that until you're about 10 before you graduated to a pair of boots so you know right from the start it was kind of the dream was to be an all black and as a young kid growing up I was really pretty competitive I was lucky enough I played in a lot of good teams um, as I grew but you know, I didn't kind of realize how competitive I was until you know everything was about keeping the score or winning and stuff and as a kid if I was in at school and we were playing games and 
the teacher wasn't keeping the score or there wasn't a result. I, I kind of lost interest in stuff. So I knew right from a from an early age how competitive I, I was and wanted to win. It's interesting, isn't it, that even between five and ten years old, this little barefoot rascal was running around with a purpose. He was on a mission to prove his competence and finding the gap, making the tackle and winning the awards helped him to do just that. There's a rosy nostalgia here that I think we've lost a little bit. Of course, we can see a healthy and vibrant youth system as we drive around our towns and cities every weekend morning. But I do think we need to be careful about being too supportive with our youngsters. We seem to have a culture in some clubs and schools where everyone wins a trophy just for participating. And I think that's rubbish. It actually does the opposite of what we hope. It robs our kids of resilience. It robs them of accountability and feelings of competence because no matter how well or badly they play, the result's the same. They get some recognition and reward. I can speak from personal experience after a life in sport and being an entrepreneur that it's much more about how you navigate adversity than creating a cosy platform to prop everyone up. I think kids need to experience winning and losing as early as they can because that's where the character's going to be built. Anyway, that's a rant done for another day. Uh, but Warren's story of little kids running out around in the fresh air dreaming of being superstars and then sometimes winning and sometimes falling short sounded like the perfect environment to me. So I wondered what Warren thought about the twin forces of mindset and talent in enabling youngsters to reach their potential in elite sport. I think that winning mindset is about, it's just how driven you are. You know, it's, you've probably got to screw loose a little bit. There's something about you that's kind of outside the norm, you know, whatever it is, whatever it drives you to, um, to want to compete and, and, and want to win. So, yeah, it's just that desire to potentially put more effort in or, or to work a little bit harder or, um, you know, some great players don't know why they're great players, they're just naturally great as well, you know, that's how do you deal with that and, and those sorts of things and others have, you know, different ways they, they're driven and they're determined, uh, they have the work ethic to, to push themselves harder than anyone else. So, yeah, you get lots of different sort of, lots of different reasons for people being the best or competing at the top, but, you know, it's always about that drive and that will and want, want to succeed. So there's no doubt that reaching mastery level in any career is going to come down to having a degree of talent, intelligence or natural aptitude. But once you get into those professional ranks, everyone has that. So the real differentiator comes from your work ethic and ability to adapt and improve continuously. Warren suggested that there's something abnormal about the top performers, and I tend to agree. I remember a few years back that the Oakley sunglasses brand had a campaign called Beyond Reason, and I interviewed the legendary sprint cyclist Mark Cavendish, who was launching one of the events. He summed up this phrase really in the way he lives his life, that he was prepared to go beyond reason to achieve success, to push himself through the muscle-burning agony day after day, to build the speed and stamina that he needed to win so many Tour de France stages at the end of those epic mountain climbs. So where does this motivation and drive come from? Is it a positive, inspirational goal that people are drawn towards? 
Or is it a deep insecurity that they're trying to avoid failure? Either way, this isn't a transient thing. It's something in the elite performers that they tap into it like a wellspring of drive that fuels their commitment for those daily disciplines day after day when most normal people would give up. We shouldn't be in too much of a rush to quell this fire either. As long as we keep those darker motivations like imposter syndrome in balance, they can push us to do the work and have that amazing attention to detail for longer than anyone else. And that's where our success is born. Warren must have had these hot springs of ambition bubbling away for many years because he became one of Waikato's longest serving players with 140 appearances. But sport is a pretty precarious career. So I was interested to see how Warren made the transition into coaching. I think for me, going into coaching was always something that was probably going to happen. It was, I was a captain of a lot of teams growing up and first 15s and sort of rep teams and, and provincial side as well. So I think it was just a natural progression. And then I was lucky enough, uh, I was in the UK and 1989 and uh, on an all-back tour and I was teaching back in New Zealand and a club in Ireland were looking for a player coach. I was 25 and I thought, you know, it's a great opportunity to do something that's a little bit different and you know, have a little bit of an OE. So I resigned my position back in New Zealand and stayed at that club in, for about five or six months as a player coach. And I did that for four years going backwards and forwards, sort of going back to New Zealand, pick up a relief job, teaching for a couple of terms and then back to Ireland as a player coach. And then I was ended up being a player coach for my club side back in New Zealand. So I got into it at a probably a very young age and the game went professional in 1995 and I was still still playing the year before. And when the game went professional, I was offered a professional playing contract and I'd never really had any injuries when I played. So if I'd taken that, I probably played for another five or six years, but I kind of, you know, had decided to retire as I said I was 30 and um, and sort of go down the coaching path and that's it probably gave me quite a significant advantage as a young age because I'd already been doing some coaching compared to some of the other players who, who were, you know as the game went professional and and more coaches were developing. Well, I can definitely relate to this lifestyle because I did exactly the reverse or the same when I was younger. I did six months as a pro cricketer in the English summer and then six months in Wellington, New Zealand for their summer. And I absolutely loved the culture, the people and, of course, that epic spirit of adventure around that Lord of the Rings scenery. Warren started his coaching early and that head start would be important as his career developed but so would the influence of some key mentors who helped him to shape his own philosophy of coaching, which is a crucial part of any leader's success. When I look back on my, on my coaching, I, I think three people probably had a significant impact on me as a coach. One was Alex Wiley, who was the All Black coach at the time, and he trained us incredibly hard. You know, he really pushed us just mentally and physically right to the limits and then but he was quite good as you on those tours when they were a bit longer as the as we're building up towards the test matches he'd back off and ease off a little bit so his was just about being tough and 
And there were simple, simple things in, a, in an all-black team that were kind of, for me as a coach, stuck with me, and even, even as a player, that um, so when the coach said, run to the line, you run to the line. You don't stop six inches short. When he says, run around the field, you run around the field. Um, because if you take a shortcut at training, you know, does that mean when things get tough in the match, you're going to take a shortcut? It's, and it's, for me, they were life lessons and, and sort of those really simple things. And as an All Black, I remember my first team meeting with, with senior players. And what struck me was one of the, one of the senior players, there were no coaches or anyone there. We talked about the history, the responsibility, what it meant to be an All Black. But one of those players said, you're better off never being an All Black than to be considered a bad one. And I kind of, well, it's kind of um, had an impact on me. And then two other guys, Glenn Ross, who was a, a teacher at school, coached me at first 15, coached me at club, coached me for Waikato. Um, what he had was structure and organisation. So he was brilliant at planning, planning training sessions. So you go to a training session, you say, look, we're doing this for 10 minutes or six minute block. And so it was that organization of, you know, probably the teaching background and, and structure. So that's kind of been a, an important element for me, um, the way that I like to train sides. I don't like training sessions that are too long, but I like them to be intensive. And I remember back to, to my playing days if the training sessions were two hours or an hour and a half, I mean, I'd lose interest, I'd get a little bit bored, but if they were shorter and sharper and more intensive, then, I, then I'd be engaged. So, you know, I definitely apply that, I have applied that to my coaching philosophy. And then and then the other person was a guy called Kevin Green, who coached uh, provincial level at Waikato, played for Waikato, played for the All Blacks. And what I learned from him is that technically he probably wasn't the greatest coach in the world, in the world but it was his man management and the way you related to people and the way you got the best out of people. So those three, you know, kind of have, I take the, the best out of them and, you know, add, add my own personality and stuff. And, you know, it's definitely been, you know, part of the process. So these are three key influences. Andrew Wiley spoke about work ethic and pushing people physically. And I love that point about not cutting corners. I think it does two things. Firstly, if you believe that you've done everything within your power to prepare, then I think you really feel confident as an athlete or a performer going into an examination. Secondly, when you see your teammates going that extra mile and committing 100% when they could have taken a shortcut, then that's when you realise that everyone is striving and sacrificing towards that shared goal. And that's what builds trust. Then Glenn Ross gave his structure and organisation, which really impressed Warren, creating that efficient training regime where players are given massive effort for a short focused period. And it's clear why they're doing every component of the skill, because it's all lined up against Saturday's game plan. And then finally, Kevin Green's emotional intelligence and ability to build strong interpersonal relationships. And that's a pretty good combination of three influences to build if you're, you've got your own natural style and then you enhance it with those things. Intensity, structure and relationships. That's going to work in any organisation. So maybe it's a question for you to reflect on. Who do you respect most as a leader in your environment? And how can you bring some of their influences into your approach? 
So as Warren developed his skills and management style with Wales, winning four Six Nations titles and three Grand Slams, he was clearly becoming a master of his craft. But a new and totally unique coaching assignment was coming his way. Here's his view of what the British and Irish Lions represents within the world of rugby and some of the challenges that leading them creates. I think the Lions is, is a concept that we need to preserve in, in the game of the game of rugby. It's uh, it's the only team that does the still does the old traditional tours that are a little bit longer and doesn't just play test matches but plays other sides as well. It's a team that has traditionally done and it doesn't get a lot of credit for this, but it has done a lot of things in the in the community. So going to schools and to hospitals and having open training sessions, um, you know, charity work as well, and that's kind of been, it's, it's unique at the moment in the game, it, it's special. And then the other thing about the Lions is is the fans and you get a sea of red traveling to, to support the team and people from four different nations and expats around the world come, come to the Lions. And to me, they're almost as important as the rugby and as, as the game. And, you know, I love it as a concept. I've been lucky enough to be involved in four tours um, and you know it, it, it's it's a challenge because you don't get a lot of preparation time. You're bringing players together from four nations who've been beating the crap out of each other over a six nations period, and then they've got to come together in a team in such a short amount of preparation time to go away. And you're playing away from home, normally against one of the best teams in the world. And I think on three of those occasions, it's been the world champions. And you know you're trying to win a test series with that limited preparation of yes, some quality players, but trying to do that and put that together in such a short time. One of the key elements of the Lions is that you're selecting the most talented individuals from each of the four Northern Hemisphere teams. But as Warren now explains, their character is under as much scrutiny as their skill in the selection for the tour. For me, is um, I often talk about selection and and what happens with selection and you know I, I played was lucky enough to go on four All Black tours but sat on the bench never got on um, because there were only injury replacements in that, in that time so was I disappointed yes did I back myself and believe myself yes that's exactly what I expect my players to be like when a team's selected or a team's name but then. It's response afterwards, you know, how do you put that disappointment behind you and and then do whatever it takes for you know, the rest of the week to have that team prepare and plan and to hopefully give a performance on the Saturday. So, yeah, strong character is important, but also being a part of the the bigger the bigger picture and, and the team is, is for me, more important than, than that. In a Lions situation where the biggest challenge is you're picking players that are used to being number one, you know, number one for the club, number one for the country, and you come into a Lions situation, all of a sudden you might be number two or number three, and how, how do you handle that? So I would have addressed that with the players. I would have talked to the players about, you know, me expecting them to be disappointed, but how are you going to respond to that disappointment? Are you going to go away and work harder? Because if players throw their toys out of the cot or spit the dummies sort of thing, you know, they're not the sort of people that I want 
in my squad. Yes, I want them being disappointed, but then I want a response in terms of putting the team first and how they they go about doing that. We did look probably one or two players and you know going through all the players and asking ourselves that question before we picked the Lions squad, you know, did they have the right personality? Would they be a person that could be disruptive in a team environment if they weren't selected? And we we did on a couple of occasions, you know, leave players out because we felt that all the information coming back to us is, you know, they're a great player and they're great when they're selected, but probably not the most positive in the environment if, if they're not. So making the tour party of 37 or 38 players is one thing, but a coach's interpersonal management skills are tested when a big player needs to be left out of the actual 15 on the match day. I remember Eddie Jones saying how hard it was to spend all week telling the players how great they are and that you love them and back them. And then you have to drop a few of them ready for the big game because you can only select 15. Warren made a huge call in 2013 to drop Ireland's captain Brian O'Driscoll and it's a decision that wasn't easy to make at the time and is still talked about today. There's been a lot of talk about the Lions in 2013 with leaving Brian O'Driscoll out of the third test and I came under an enormous amount of criticism, um, probably a lot more than I expected. I was, I, as, a, as a coaching group we were there and we, we, we were all unanimous that that was the right call and the right selection. And I did say to them, there's going to be a little bit of a fallout over this, but I had no idea what the fallout was going to be like. And uh, so the conversation with Brian, you know, wasn't too long. Um, and his whole career, when he'd been fit, he'd never been dropped. I was lucky enough to give him his first cap for for Ireland then to deliver that news. Um, yeah, it wasn't the easiest thing to do, but we'd made, this, made the selection and then I could have easily softened that by putting them on the bench and perhaps there wouldn't have been so much, so much criticism. You know, people would then debate why was he starting, why he wasn't starting, but my job was to do what I think is the best for the team and to put the team first. And we had a choice between Brian and, and Manu Tuolangi, who was fit as well and pretty devastating as a midfielder. And the thought process was, you know, 15 minutes before the end could and Manu Tuolangi come on and be destructive and, and, and cause Australia problems. And so we made the, you know, the tough call, the really tough decision. And that's, I've never been afraid to do that because I've got to put the team first. It's not about making soft calls or trying to soften that for me. And if there's criticism, then you've got to deal with that. But the great thing about Brian, and I spoke about that earlier, is that he was in the lift going up with one of the analysts and he said, um, I've talked the talk, now I've got to walk the walk because he had been, as the Irish captain over a number of years, had been delivering that exact same message about players being disappointed, either not in the 15 or not in the 23, but now it's how you respond to that and you've got to do everything you can to help the team prepare for the weekend. And in fairness to him, he did exactly that. So I got a huge amount of respect for, for him, the way that I know how disappointed he was, but then the way he conducted himself. I have no idea whether that was the right tactical decision, but I really respect the way Warren decided not to go for that halfway house position of dropping him to the bench. It may have been so much easier, it would definitely have softened the blow. But in agreement with his management team, 
he backed his judgment and delivered that frosty news. The personal side of these kind of conversations can really cloud our judgment and dull our courage. But by elevating the needs of the team as the central criteria for the decision, he was able to commit to it without regret. This insight also shows what life inside one of these high-performing teams is like. Brian O'Driscoll was a top player, but a tough call was made and he handled it with huge dignity. It's the respect for our leaders and our teammates in these great teams that brings out the best in people. And in turn, showing this selfless character in times of real adversity reinforces the character and high standards the team upholds. Leading the Lions brings unique challenges in that they have less time to gel and longer tours against formidable opposition. So the need to build a shared mindset and team spirit is essential. Add to this the fatigue, injuries, media scrutiny and selection decisions we've just explored and you have to find very special ways to unite them and keep them united. So I was interested to hear how Warren dismantled the egos and the existing national rivalries and then rebuilt a cohesive culture. And in an increasingly professional environment, it was good to hear that some of the traditional team building methods were still in use. Normally a night out together is, it helps bring everyone in a few drinks and that's, you try and how do you manu manufacture that early on tour so guys are having, you know, so there's a bit of socialising and that's always important. You've got guys that sort of know each other but don't know each other that well in, in a Lions um, situation. Probably that, there's a couple of things having spoken to a lot of people about the Lions and it's it's not... The, the biggest challenge is not the rugby or, or getting things right, it's, it's getting things right off the field. How do you create some harmony off the field? And if you can get that right, then I think you've got to, goes a long way to, you know, potentially getting some, some success on the rugby field. Um, and having spoken to previous Lions coaches and managers, you know, there have been tours where there has been a divide amongst amongst the group, and and you know hasn't been they haven't been happy tours. So the first thing that I would say to the to the whole group is in the first three games everyone will get a start. So you're picking. So you've probably got three hookers, three nines, three tens. So I know myself if I was a player and the coach said I'm going to start in the first one of the first three games, then. I would look at it and go, here's an opportunity for me and if I play well and the team play well, plays well, then maybe I can push myself forward, put myself in the shop window to potentially get selected for, you know, starting 15 for a test or, or, or whatever. So does that, it makes us tough, a little bit tough from a preparation point of view because you, you, you've got sort of eight games and, and three tests, including three tests on a Lions tour. So, but you know, the, the combinations that you're trying to look at and put together, you probably have got some of those in your mind early on, but the harmony within the group was actually more important than that. Having spent many days as 12th man or on the bench in my career, I can appreciate that it's not much fun to feel like you're a travelling spare part. But when you know you're going to get this opportunity, it's great for your focus, preparation and confidence. 
And this equitable rotation policy was another way to get everyone off on an equal footing as the tour gathered momentum. But Warren had a secret weapon to bring the team together and it was the last thing that I was expecting him to say. It was singing as a group, as he now explains. The uh, the choir stuff that we, we've done kind of... It really... I didn't realise at the time just how um, much would bring the group together. Um, and it's probably... Go, if I go back to 2011 in the World Cup in, in New Zealand, is, and I know a lot of teams went out there and weren't prepared and we made sure that from a Welsh perspective we were well, well prepared. So you go when you arrive in New Zealand you end up on a marae, you get welcome and donned, so you come in as a group, um, they, will, they will sing to you, you've got to respond with, with the song or they may do another one and you've got, so there may be a couple of songs. So we made sure that from a Welsh perspective we were well prepared as a team and had you know, three or four songs under our belt so that we were able to to do that in New Zealand and we got a great response from that and you know some other teams hadn't prepared and they get welcomed on and the only thing they've got is their national anthem and so in 2017 it was it was the same thing with the Lions you know so we've got to respond to being welcomed on so the idea was well let's pick a song from you know each of the four nations and put the players in groups and that was up to them to decide what song they were they wanted to do so. You know, the Welsh did Kellen Land with Jerusalem. The Irish did Fields of Athen Rye, and uh, the Scots did um, Highland. Oh, some some Highland. Uh, I can't remember the, the name of it now. Um, and we got choir master in, and we practiced and we prepared for it, and it kind of just galvanised us and put us look together, but. Then when we were out there and we won games, the boys would sing the song in the change rooms afterwards and it created a kind of a, you know, a bit of a team atmosphere. Um, I remember one team meeting with the coach, we were a little bit late because we were doing a bit of planning and the boys started singing one of the songs, I think it was Jerusalem, just quietly just giving us a bit of a, a reminder that they'd been sitting there waiting for us and we had to hurry up. So yeah, that was quite a bit of a, a bit of fun, but yeah, it was, it was something that surprised me, and but you know definitely did bring us together a little bit. Gave the guys from the four different countries a bit of you know their own identity within a, within an alliance environment, and it gave it gave um, the rest of us a, almost a bit of an appreciation or understanding. So I know the boys who, who weren't Welsh, you know, love singing Calan Lan, which is, is you know sung in Welsh and. It's, it takes a little bit of time to, to learn as well. So, yeah, that was yeah, a great experience. I think this is so powerful on so many levels. The first is obviously the equal airtime that each of the four national cultures are getting in this process. The second is that the players are sacrificing their time and comfort to learn a different language or a part of each other's heritage. But it also mixes up the hierarchies even further. On the rugby pitch, for example, you can imagine the hierarchy of silky skill, like the number nine who can do all the funky passes, the fly half who's the best at kicking, or the number eight who's renowned for his ferocious tackles. That's the skill hierarchy within the team. Then in the evenings, you've got the social hierarchy playing out, the extrovert, finds masters, uh, you know, those people who've got all the banter and jokes and knocking people down if they're a bit quieter, more clumsy or forgetful as team members. 
but the combined choir provides a brand new domain. The best singers can step forward, so new stars emerge. Maybe it is the quieter introvert or a more of a journeyman pro that becomes the brilliant baritone. And that's just what the team needs. The last thing we need is a fragile power hierarchy where the boss has all the jokes, all the skill, all the influence and everyone else is just a passenger. Great teams celebrate each other's strengths in many areas and under pressure on these long tours, the more diversity and strengths you've got in the camp, the better. So that's a snapshot of my interview with Warren Gatland and you can find loads more of his content and insights alongside the likes of Kieran Reid, Eddie Jones, Stuart Lancaster and Sir Ian McGeekin in our Sporting Edge Members Club. I really hope you've enjoyed learning more about Warren's coaching style and experience with the Lions and it sets us up to watch his new era of leadership with the Welsh team. Thanks for tuning in and sharing the show. The more listeners we get, the better the guests can become And I haven't packed the show full of adverts, so I really hope you'll be able to spread the word by sharing the link across your social media community and company networks. Remember, if you need any support with your leadership events, keynotes or 2023 conferences or any digital content to bring your campaigns to life, then just drop me a note via hello at sportingedge.com. I really look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, have a great week. And remember, when whales play, sing your heart out. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.